Hello, and welcome to Kroll Security Concepts Podcast, the podcast where Kroll security experts discuss the more prevalent topics in today's risk environment. Hello, and welcome to another Security Concepts Podcast. Today, we're discussing the current trends in ideological terrorism and how the environment has changed in recent years. To have this conversation, we're bringing back Matthew Dumpert, who you've met on previous podcasts, and introducing to our podcast, Chris Pomodesso. Chris came to Kroll after many years in the U.S. intelligence community in roles such as the project lead for the DHS Nationwide Suspicious Activity Reporting Initiative and as a senior intelligence analyst and briefer in the U.S. National Counterterrorism Center. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Hey, Jeff, thanks so much. Happy to be with you again and happy to be talking about uh, some of the emerging threats in in terrorism, something top of mind for a lot of people. Yeah, Jeff, Chris over here. It's uh, it's nice to be on the Curl team and really excited to chat with you guys about uh, the evolving terrorism threat and uh, how the pandemic's played a role in that. Yeah, it's a very interesting topic. Uh, We know that the risk managers out there, the security directors, the general counsels, they've been heavily tasked with dealing with all of the risk that is out there. And we haven't had, even on this podcast, we haven't even talked about world terrorism and how it is changing and and how it is still a threat. So it's really interesting to be able to get you guys in, these uh, intelligence people, the people that have used your entire careers combating global terrorism in one level or the other, uh, to have you guys all on to talk about this. Um, I will go right into some questions. Let's start with, uh, can you talk about the new and emerging threats? We know that you know, the Afghani government and the Taliban's return to power, some changes there have maybe introduced some additional threats. But what are you guys seeing as the emerging threats out there? Jeff, that's an excellent place to start. Um, you know, after the fall of, of Afghanistan and, the, and, and the, the Afghani government and the rise of the Taliban back to power, um, I think we can expect an uptick in ideological and transnational terrorism. Uh, likely to be regional at first in areas where they have a nexus of support um, or a sphere of influence uh, or areas where they can easily access uh, through porous borders. Um, You know, with Afghanistan now in the hands of the Taliban, uh, whether it regresses into the type of uh, uh, failed state of the past is yet to be seen. The Taliban has expressed on the world stage a desire to be uh, at the table, to be at the negotiating table, and to be part of the world dialogue, uh, that remains to be seen. What I fully expect uh, to happen in short time here is, again, that uptick in ideological and transnational terrorism, targeting uh, you know, typical venues that have symbolic significance, uh, whether, where there are large densities of, of Westerners uh, or venues that, that shock the soul. And I say shock the soul because when there's an attack at a shopping mall, or a movie theater, or a uh, holiday market. Uh, those are places where people go every day uh, without thinking twice. They pack their kids in the car, uh, they bring their parents, their loved ones, their friends, and they go without thinking. Uh, and when an attack is taken out or, or perpetrated in those types of venues, uh, it shocks the soul. It shocks the soul of a nation, and it shocks the soul of the world. Um, it, it rocks their psyche, and that's the ultimate goal. Uh, the individuals perpetrating this type of violence know the number of people that they're going to be able to hurt, maim, or kill is limited, particularly if they're acting alone. And we'll talk about that later, which is what we're seeing more and more of. Um, however, the psychological impact can be significant if they're able to disrupt 
the lives uh, of millions of people. Yeah, Matt, as we well know, uh, that, that terrorism threat has been evolving uh, over the past uh, 20 years or so post 9-11, obviously speaking about the uh, larger attacks and the attacks on, on uh, the World Trade Center in 9-11. Uh, we're not obviously going to see those larger attacks. The intelligence community has indicated thus that we will see, as you mentioned, a lot of those smaller attacks. The pandemic really playing into, into, this, uh, into this risk model, really focusing on uh, some of the vulnerabilities uh, that were out there in the past, there were no longer vulnerabilities such as the shopping malls and, and, and some of the other uh, commercial sectors uh, were no longer that vulnerability because people were not there in those soft targets as we had spoken about. And so what's really interesting to see is as we get back to work, we get back to our buildings uh, and, and our, our malls and our schools uh, where, where really the vulnerability now is exposing itself again. And as you had mentioned, this uh, terrorism threat is still evolving with some of those uh, uh, lone offenders, uh, homegrown violent extremists uh, that are part of that uh, ideological extremism uh, element. So, um, you know, as we do get back to work, that is something we really do need to pay special attention to. Chris, that's an excellent point. You brought up something I want to amplify, and that's that's the notion of the soft target. Um, you know, the most likely manifestation in the U.S., I think, uh, at least, is is from those who may be inspired uh, to conduct small acts of violence, you know, with particular, you know, homemade weapons, uh, like we saw at the, the Boston Marathon bombing, for instance. Um, and again, you know, these homemade, uh, or these lone wolf, uh, style attacks can involve firearms. They can involve knives, vehicles plowing into crowds or any other type of impromptu or homemade weapon. Um, and uh, again, the, the number of people that can be hurt, maimed or killed it's not insignificant, but it's not large scale. Uh, the large scale operation is is getting harder and harder to perpetrate because of the international community, the global community uh, of intelligence communities, of, of law enforcement communities, the concerned citizenry who now know if they see something to say something. Um, it's a lot easier to perpetrate one of those lone wolf style attacks with homemade or impromptu weapons. And that notion of soft target that you just that you just mentioned is critically important, particular to our particularly to our listeners here, um, because that's something that that we can change. That's something that we can impact. Uh, the goal for any security director, risk officer, uh, general counsel, or anyone tasked with a, a security portfolio is doing those things that are reasonable to make your facility, make your operation as hard a target as possible. Um, the last thing that, that any business wants or any uh, facility or, or risk manager or, or corporate counsel wants is for their facility to be uh, the target because of either porous security features uh, or uh, a lack of attention on the basics uh, of securing facilities and securing people. Yeah, building resiliency is absolutely a huge to that point, Matt. Um... You can't stress that enough. I mean, from, from the government sector to the to the private sector, we're gonna we're gonna be a nail on that wood at home. Just the, the the ability to identify the risk model, really taking into consideration uh, the threat, um, and by by taking into consideration the threat, it's really important for our, our private sector partners to understand that there's a significance in understanding the intent of the adversary and the capability of the adversary in that particular threat, and then looking at the vulnerable us. Uh, elements within your sector, whether it's an insider threat, whether it's uh, actual uh, brick and mortar uh, vulnerability within your sector, and then the consequences and really what the consequence would be if that actor was able to exploit that 
uh, vulnerability based on their intent and capability uh, and uh, what the consequence would be on your workforce, on your your cyber infrastructure, on your actual brick and mortar infrastructure, your your, your, your safety and security, that all would be very, very, uh, very key to assessing in part of the uh, risk model and the scientific approach to it. Yeah, it makes it makes getting the basics uh, perfect, right? I mean, in, in any security apparatus, there are some basic functions um, that can help thwart um, a, a, a either criminal or terrorist incident. Uh, we talked about motives. We talked about preparedness. We talked about resources. We talked about the notion of the lone wolf versus the highly sophisticated. Um, and what it boils down to in a lot of cases for, for private sector and even public sector security directors is making sure that the basics of security are fully functioning, right? And what that allows us to do is when our, when the basics of security are fully functioning and well practiced, it makes it that much easier to tackle the hard things, the hard things like identifying pre-operational surveillance, detecting threat indicators. Those red flag indicators that violence is either being planned or or immediately afoot, and then of course the the hard duty of counteracting or or mitigating a, a more sinister act. And what do I mean when I talk about basics? It's 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 access control. It's training our people, our citizenry, our employees to recognize suspicious activity and pick up on it early in the terrorism life cycle. And I'll talk about that in a second. It's knowing the indicators of potential violence so that people can stand up and say and report, I saw something suspicious and it needs to be investigated and assessed as suspicious activity. We know, I just alluded to the terrorism attack life cycle, we know that both criminal elements and uh, ideological extremists or terrorist uh, actors conduct what we call pre-operational surveillance. And we know it happens generally and at least twice before any attack. Matt, we've also seen how, how well the, uh, the, the reporting of suspicious activity uh, and those behaviors that are reasonably indicative of pre-operational behavior is successful. I mean, we saw that in Point Pleasant when there was the uh, marathon down there and uh, a couple of folks saw some suspicious behavior. It turned out there was a homegrown violent extremist that was uh, attempting to plant an IED uh, to disrupt the uh, marathon down there in Point Pleasant. So. You know, that's it's only as good as the communication that that our security directors out there are able to build with the trust that they build with their employees to to know how to report those suspicious indicators, really knowing what is unusual to that particular workplace. It's only as good as uh, the information that we gather from our uh, our workforce and from the folks that really can identify something that's out of the ordinary. That's exactly right. And having the infrastructure set up, right? Having those communication pipelines established so that your employees, if they see something around the workplace or in the immediate neighborhood, in the immediate vicinity of their workplace that seems odd or out of place, right? This is an environment that they interact with regularly. So they know what's normal and what's abnormal. Um, sometimes it's difficult to get folks to call the police or call 911 if they see a suspicious package or a suspicious individual. Um, but it's a lot easier uh, if the workplace, if the employer has a threat reporting process established, right? It can even be anonymous. It can be a an inbox that's monitored 
um, where they can they can report suspicious activity, and that goes directly to those within the organization who are tasked with safety, security, investigations, and assessment. I mean, the, the other basics that we're talking about here are, uh, you know, robust access control, keeping bad actors out of facilities, so that the, the, if they do intend on violence, their the ability for them to carry out something large scale is limited. Vehicle access controls, the screening of vendors. Uh, mail screening so that, you know, suspicious mail items can't circulate throughout the, the business place. Um, isolating, uh, your workplace so that if a bad actor does get in and they intend on violence, limiting their access throughout the workplace, uh, thereby mitigating the amount of damage that they can, that they can inflict. Notification systems, evacuation procedures. These are all basics of security that security professionals and security directors and risk managers and general counsels deal with every day. Um, when those things are buttoned up, when those things are well in place and well practiced, there's a fluency. And it, it frees up the bandwidth for our security staff to then deal with these more sinister acts, with picking up on the pre-operational surveillance, with picking up on threat indicators of violence. Um, if, if those basics are not fluent, then so much of our daily bandwidth is taking up maintaining those basic processes. We don't have the time, the energy, or the bandwidth to deal with the more sinister stuff. Um, so really, it's, it's, it's now that companies need to be looking inward and looking at their security policies, procedures, and protocols. It's now where they need to be looking at their business continuity and resiliency plans. Now's the time to do it so that if there is an uptick in transnational uh, violence and, and violent extremism, we're in a better place to deal with it at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, Matt, I can't, I can't agree with you more on this. You know, the threat, the external threats, the evolving threats that we spoke about, we can't, that's out of our control. I mean, we're talking about agencies with three letters that are working this kind of stuff every single day to mitigate these threats. But what you had mentioned there, building your security plan, business continuity is just so vital. You look at the model, the risk model, obviously every element of threat, vulnerability and consequence is going to be very important. But from a director of security at a private sector industry, you're really going to be looking at that vulnerability piece and how to build that resiliency and identify what is vulnerable about your particular element. It's only as good as what you know about your uh, your, your particular entity and then also the knowledge from the outside agencies and outside private sector entities that might be able to weigh in on what exactly uh, you know is vulnerable about your sector based on the threats that we're seeing and really what the consequences would be by playing out some scenarios and really looking at what the uh, what the uh, return on investment of building uh, your, your your resiliency uh, would be, just focusing on the vulnerability and how significant that how significant that is to a particular entity. I just can't really hammer home how how important that is in, in just this uh, podcast alone. Absolutely, Chris. You know, we 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 both come from from the federal law enforcement background, and and you spending a bit of time. In the intelligence industry, there there are very serious professionals out there that are that are uh, every day and every night and every morning um, uh, keeping tabs on international and transnational terrorism activity. Um, those are things that are outside the control of of the business sector, right? Um, but I want to highlight the public private partnership is critically important here. We learned. From 9-11 and, and some other uh, subsequent smaller uh, instances of violence, that communication between public and private sector is critical. 
There are resources out there that are available to security directors, to general counsels, to risk managers, um, not only uh, that pass unclassified information from government to private sector, but there's a tremendous amount of business to business and peer groups out there that are actively sharing information, whether it's based on your sector, based on your region, based on your city. Um, and I, I encourage every security director out there or whoever is responsible for the security uh, program uh, within your organization to seek out those opportunities because there's a tremendous amount of information that is shared um, in these uh, public, private, and in these business to business, and even in some cases, ad hoc partnerships. Uh, you know, like minded companies, like minded individuals get together and they talk about these things. And you, you'd be surprised on how much information is passed in these types of venues. Yeah, there's some great resources out there, Matt, for sure. Uh, and you know what? This is, there is no room for failure. Um, with, with, with what's going on with this evolving, evolving terrorism threat over the last few years, there is no room and, uh, we need to be 100% effective, um, for, uh, our, our own private entity as well as for the public, uh, infrastructure. That's important. Uh, all that works together hand in hand and there really is no room for error. That's why it's so important to have these conversations. I call this the, uh, prevention of, uh, September 10th. Well, we don't want to have that happen. Again, we don't want it to be September 10th, 2001. We want it to be what it is now, which is an open, rich communication and dialogue, uh, an ability to identify vulnerabilities and also protecting that critical infrastructure information. That's really vital. I know there's a lot of government programs out there that run uh, some of the vulnerability assessments and, and ensure uh, protecting critical infrastructure information. I think that Kroll does a pretty, pretty good job at uh, making sure that we identify that as well and make sure we don't uh, expose those vulnerabilities, which is very important in doing these assessments. That's an excellent point. I and mean, when, you, when you reference back to September 10th, uh, we've learned a lot as, as a nation uh, and as a, as a global citizenry. Um, and, and recently, if, if you haven't heard, colleagues of ours, Steve Palumbo and John Friedlander, were recently on a panel uh, about the evolution of security the public-private partnerships that have evolved since 9-11 and how 9-11 really changed the entire landscape, not only for our nation, and that's clear. I mean, we have uh, institutions that didn't exist. We have all types of intelligence and law enforcement uh, capabilities now that, that never existed previously. But, but more importantly for us here today and for our listeners is how the landscape has changed for the private sector and how the private sector is better coordinating and collaborating with public sector. And if you haven't had the opportunity, I urge you, uh, it can be found on our website, on Kroll's Security Risk Management website. Um, but Steve Palumbo and John Friedlander really had a great panel discussion on how the effects of 9-11 totally transformed uh, private security and the relationship between public and private sector. Well, it's been fascinating talking about the changes uh, to what's happened in the world terrorism. But what I really want to focus on now is uh, what are the main targets of this ideological extremism? What, what, who are they looking for? What are they trying to attack at this point based on intelligence that we've uh, been able to gather? Yeah, Jeff, there's a lot of talk about that. And you know, what we've seen is, is really two macro level target preferences for ideological extremism, terrorism, violence. Uh, we've got on one hand the, the highly iconic trophy win 
scenarios, of course, trophy win in, in air quotes. And we're talking about critical infrastructure, government facilities, iconic brands, landmarks. Um, th- these types of, of targets uh, uh, for an adversary can be very costly, time-consuming, a fairly low success rate because uh, our intelligence and our law enforcement community and our private sector community is aware uh, of these types of targets. Uh, there's a high likelihood that plans will be disrupted. Um, uh, however, they're still attractive because of significant ideological and propaganda wins if they're successful, even partially successful. Um, what we see more often uh, on a global scale are these high damage, low risk type of uh, attacks. Uh, these are your lone wolf or your small group attacks in, in largely publicly accessible spaces whether it's soft target commercial or, or government buildings. Um, these are places where there's a high likelihood of success, right? These are uh, with porous access control. These are publicly accessible venues. These are places where you can go freely. Um, there's not a tremendous amount of planning or resourcing needed for a lone wolf um, or a small group to carry out an, an attack of this nature. There's a low likelihood of disruption. Um, and, and the wins can also be significant while they don't have that banner effect. They don't have that trophy, um, effect. Um, that these attacks can, like we said earlier, rock the soul of a nation and make a citizenry really question their safety and, and security on a day to day basis. Think of, you know, attacks at shopping malls or, um, you know, government facilities or publicly accessible parks. You know, obviously, we at Crawl have no reason to believe anything like this is afoot now or imminent. Um, but there's a reason why those types of attacks, those types of, of activity um, have become more and more popular because they're effective, not in, not in, in the, the numbers of people that they injure, maim or kill or disrupt, but really in that psychological effect and the propaganda value of carrying out a, a significant attack like that. And, and I really do think that these types of high damage, low risk lone wolf small group in public venues uh, are the most likely types of incidents we're going to see. And a lot of the training that's offered uh, to employees when we talk about threat management, when we talk about the, the recognition of, of red flag indicators of violence or that terrorism life cycle we talk so much about, when we, when we, when we bring our employees, our colleagues into the fold on what we, we know and do in the safety and the security business every day, uh, those lessons can be applied in their private lives as well. Being aware that suspicious activity could lead to a criminal or a terrorist event can help everybody in their private lives as well. Think about, you know, you're on the, uh, on the weekend, you're at the shopping mall with your family and you pick up on suspicious activity. Well, okay, rather than report it to my, my corporate uh, uh, infrastructure for, for threat management or suspicious activity, I, I now know that I need to report it elsewhere, law enforcement, mall management, facility management. So these lessons um, are, are applicable in, in all aspects of life. Yeah, Matt, that's a great point about the uh, advisories and really being aware of what's happening right now and, and realizing that the terrorism threat is, is, as we're consistently saying, evolving. It's not, it, it did not go away. Um, that's the importance of that national terrorism advisory system that Homeland Security has. So, you know, gathering that as a, as a consumer of intelligence and understanding uh, the threats that are out there, for instance, the Bolton that went out about two or three weeks ago now um, uh, regarding malls in, in, in Northern uh, Virginia and the significance of just understanding that, Hey, you know what? That's a threat. 
and then the implication of uh, of that on on the private sector on the public uh, is is just invaluable. What happened in Liverpool a few days ago just was a great illustration of what we were talking about with regards to um, how it impacts the global uh, awareness of the of the terrorism threat. We're talking about an attempted uh, attack on the healthcare sector, right? So uh, it did not occur uh, inside the building, or really, really have enabled the actor to execute um, that particular attack. But uh, it, it showed the implications to the global awareness of what could uh, how this how this evolving terrorism threat could impact, uh, yeah, public awareness of the evolving threat. Yeah, and talking about public awareness, um, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't if I didn't highlight, you know, the the milestone events, the anniversaries, the holidays that are that are so significant in the in the in the terrorism and the extremist violence um, mindset. And that's you know, it's really no secret. It's something that's been talked about, and and it's talked about every year um, that it's it, you're most likely to have an incident like this or an attack like this in and around milestone events, anniversaries, or holidays. Um, whether they're spiritually or religiously significant or, or significant, uh, on a national level, uh, these holidays and milestones, again, if an attack is perpetrated around these times, when people are home with families, when they're taking vacation, when they're on leave, when they're celebrating, these types of attacks can again, rock the soul. We're talking about, um, holiday markets. We're talking about National Day festivities. We're talking about uh, significant public gatherings. And there's a reason why we see a spike in activity around these times. Um, but I do want to point out that it's not necessarily the day of the anniversary or the day of uh, a holiday, right? It's, it's, the, it's the, the days leading up to and after. Um, you have to understand that those who are planning these types of attacks um, are gathering resources, people, they're putting plans together. Um, and, and, you know, this isn't uh, a, a, a production facility that's run uh, smoothly in all cases. So what you might see is, is an uptick in violence around the holiday season. And the reason for that is, uh, you know, a terrorism plan or plot is going to be carried out uh, typically as soon as the perpetrators have all the resources and personnel in place. Because at that point, it becomes tremendously risky to have everything in place without carrying out a plan. Um, there are, there are uh, uh, threads out there that law enforcement and intelligence communities can pick up on. The longer they wait, the more likely they are to be disrupted or caught. Um, uh, so you might see uh, a plan carried out in the days leading up to or the days immediately following one of these uh, anniversaries, holidays, or, or milestone events. Well, gentlemen, that was a fantastic conversation, so much so that I almost forgot we were doing a podcast and I have some role to play here. That being said, I think it's time to wrap this one up. I want to thank everybody on the uh, podcast for coming and joining us for this one. I also want to thank all the listeners and we'll see you on the next one. Yeah.